If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Colleen, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get this show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 154 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for another classic episode of Conversation. This one's getting super classic. We got Sharon Gless with us today. That's right. Cagney from Cagney and Lacey is here. Emmy Award winner, Golden Globe winner, Sharon Gless. We're talking all about her new memoir. Apparently there were complaints. Sharon has an amazing backstory full of so many amazing stories. We go deep into her past. My fascination with her character on Nip Tuck. We talk Cagney and Lacey, of course. So much, so much. You're going to love my conversation with Sharon Glass, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, allow me to showcase episode 152, my guest Robbie Rist. You loved him as Cousin Oliver on The Brady Bunch. He was also the voice of Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, in the live-action movies. Great discussion on whether or not he destroyed the Brady Bunch. So you got to check that out. Episode 152. Episode 153 is a fan favorite. It was a bonus episode. Live segments from our Crossing the Streams show that we do every Wednesday. Basically, it's just a bunch of TV binge-watching suggestions. And we got all the full episodes on my YouTube channel. Follow me there. Just search The Jeff Duoskin Show on YouTube. Over 80 hours of TV binge-watching suggestions. OHU. All right. Episode 152, Robbie Rist. Now let's get on with episode 154. The reason you're here, Sharon Glass. We dive into a lot of stories. If you want to hear more about the stories we talk about, definitely check out Sharon's memoir. Apparently there were complaints. She goes a lot deeper into a lot of the stories and also there's a ton more. So we're going to cover, oh my goodness, so much, so much. I'm just going to get right to it right now. Everybody enjoy my conversation with Sharon Glass. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today, star of Cagney and Lacey, Queerest Folk, Burn Notice, just to name a few, multiple Emmy and Golden Globe Award winner, most recently author of the fantastic memoir, Apparently There Were Complaints. Please welcome to the show, legendary actress, Sharon Gless. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. Legendary sounds so old, but I'll take it. You are a legend. You are a legend. You've earned it. You've earned it. So you got to take it. (laughs) Well, thank you for hanging with me on my podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you for inviting me. So I read your book. I love it. And while Emmys and Golden Globes are super cool, I loved the uh, Copacabana School of Acting certificate that you got. I Uh, uh, I, I feel like... I was so offended until my friend had it framed for me. Right, Mark Taylor, you talk about it. It was like, I thought that was great. And then you kept it. Isn't that the best? And then you kept it. And those are like the things that I think are like so awesome, like turning like that rottenness that that paper did into gold. Well, he had the the fun nature to do that. I was limping around thinking, how dare they? And then when he had a frame for me, I thought, this is so cool. Uh, (laughs) Who else has that? Who else has that diploma? Nobody. No one. You are the you are the only graduate of the Cobra (laughs) Cabana. There's nobody else in my class. Graduated alone. Uh, It's it's just part of the legendary status. You know, no one else can no one else can take that away from you. And then the other thing I thought was amazing was when you talk about getting roasted by Don Rickles. I as a comedian. I love that. To personally get roasted by Don Rickles is really very, very cool. He has to like you oh, to yeah. insult you. Do oh, you know yeah. what I mean? It all comes from love. That's why it was like, yeah, it was all takeable. I'm sure it was really cool to just be part of that. What do you say? Oh, uh, wait, wait, what do you say? Um, personally, I like the brunette better. Now there's an actress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The book is awesome. Oh, you know what? I, I did want to kind of say, I wanted to start 
with one thing. So in 1982, I saw Poltergeist, okay? And it was the scariest thing I ever saw. And to this day, haunts me. Those scenes in the, the tree, I don't know if you saw the clown, all that kind of stuff. The only other thing in life that has constantly been in the back of my mind and frightens me is your role on Nip Talk. Honest to God, <laughs> when you killed that person with that Build-A-Bear thing and you stuffed them, I mean, I don't know what it was, but that stuck with me. I mean, that was like, what, 2008, 2009? That was, uh, I mean, it like haunts me. Like, it's right up there with those things. And like- I got nominated for that. You deserved it. Well, I mean, I didn't write it. I mean, Ryan Murphy, he was the genius who wrote it. He said it was the sickest, sickest episode of Nip Tuck he'd ever written. And he's written some sick ones. Yeah, Nip Tuck pushed boundaries like no one's business. But yeah, yeah, that your character on that was just insane. It was, you know, I wear these glasses. I mean, they're really mine. And Ryan saw me on, on a talk show wearing them. And he said, I want you to wear them in the show. And I didn't realize it. But after the show aired, I was in like a little store buying a little satin baseball jacket for my granddaughter. And the girl who was waiting on me ran away from me and ran in the back of the store. The man who ran the store came out and he said, what seems to be the problem? I said, I don't know. He said, oh, she saw you last night. <laughs> and I was wearing these glasses. I forget, you know. Sure. He saw you on the view. Right. And then just asked you to take, just wear what you were wearing on the view. Yeah. Right? Ryan saw me on the view and said, is that Armani? I said, yeah. And um, anyway, he said, I want you to wear exactly what you're wearing on that show and wear those glasses. I said, perfect. Thank you. Was that a fun experience being that evil and working on that show? Talk? Oh yeah. It was really, really fun. I loved, I loved doing that part. It, um, my leading man was not nice to me. The, um, the, uh, Dylan Walsh was not nice to you. The, the small one. Yeah. The one you represented on the show kind of. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't nice to me at all. I don't know why it just wasn't, but the other one, the tall, sexy one was so kind to me every morning. He'd say, good morning. How are you this morning? And I'd be so relieved that somebody would be nice to me. I don't know if was his name, Dylan. The, the the nice Ju uh, Christian Troy Julian McMahon. Oh, the, that's one that's the one you like. Nice Julian you. McMahon was yeah, the good one. Yeah, but the smaller one. Just <laughs> and I think I think maybe he must maybe he was a method actor and thought he's supposed to treat me like shit because I'm the villain. But it was it was um it wasn't fun oh, well, work on. I I kept going when I did get nominated. I must say that he did actually. Well, maybe maybe he was just. He was just jealous of of you coming into the show when he wanted to be top banana. But like, uh, he does kill you in the end. He was so. top banana. He was, I know. you know, he was one of the two stars of the show. Get over yourself. Maybe, maybe he just wasn't comfortable with the strong woman coming in and and kind of messing maybe. Up, messing up the I don't know the rhythms. I don't know. Well, I'm sorry about that. He's thrilled to be given the part. There's a scene in that where she gets caught selling the bears. At a build a bear place, you know, she's just that's really who she is. Right, she she's never, a retail worker. She's never right. an agent. I asked if I could wear little ears, you know, rouge on my cheeks, so I'd look like a you know a little build a bear person. And they said no, so I went and did my makeup anyway and bought little ears. Not to be uh, cantankerous, it's just I thought it was more touching that she does that, you know, to sell her bears. Well, it's it's one of those roles that. <laughs> <laughs> my therapist said well you should get sharon on your podcast and talk through this uh maybe you can make <laughs> how can i help <laughs> how can i help you jeff <laughs> i think you have you have this is this is great thank you all right so that's awesome so the book is interesting i i didn't know a lot of the backstory but you come from a very powerful family it was it was an interesting dynamic with your grandparents my family i mean they were as powerful as my grandparents were my grandparents my grandfather was very powerful in the industry and my grandmother was just powerful just as a woman you know i mean it's it really it wasn't about the industry so much as it was uh, her personal power and what she wanted from me and for me she was formidable my goal I think first half of my life was to please her, to make her proud of me. So when I was asked to write this book, I came up with the title almost immediately. Apparently there were complaints. It wasn't hard to come up with the subject matter, to come up with the idea for the chapters, because there were complaints throughout my life 
and you those you never forget. You know, right? You occasionally remember the good review. You never remember. You never forget the bad ones. It's like that. I I hear you. Yeah, I do stand up, and everyone's laughing, and the one person in front's not. That's all you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's the one who breaks your heart. Right. (laughs) It was interesting because I felt like I. when my mom would tell stories of of her mom, so my grandma, it was uh, there's an era where they want things a certain way and they expect women to be a certain way, to act a certain way, and all that kind of stuff. And it's some of that damage that carries on over or into the grandkids and stuff like that. Like in our family, there were some weird dynamics, but like it resonated a bit as I was hearing that. Thank you. I used to have to walk for my grandmother and be seated in a chair in front of her, and then rise from the chair. And always sit with my knees together and my ankles crossed, you know. I never could keep my knees together. This is not a comment on my being promiscuous. I'm just not built that way. You know, I just was never comfortable with my knees together. I ended up being just totally the opposite from everything she wanted. But I think inside and underneath it all, I remember her really very, very um, romantically. That's the word. I remember her very romantically. That makes sense. It's it's hard sometimes Mm -hmm. to... Certain things like being called when she called you Moby Dick and like trying to lose to 40 pounds for the, the debutante and like the painful things. But then there were things along the way that got you to who you are today as well. It's sometimes it's right. hard to dissect. And when I did and- lose the weight to that debutante ball, she did call me the next morning and said that everybody was praising her because they knew she'd locked me up to take the pounds off. As you know, in the book, it's a painful journey. Right. But she did call me the next morning and say, Grace has been misplaced. She said, it goes to you. So then she, you know, after she'd then go do something wonderful like that. Right. And get the give and take and make you feel good. And then. Yeah. I was very fortunate, really, considering. Hi there. Sorry to interrupt. Just need to take a quick break and thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here. Classic conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. Now back to my conversation with Sharon Glass. We were about to talk about her grandfather, powerful attorney, and a really interesting story about Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And we're back. Your grandfather was powerful attorney. Howard Hughes, Cecil B. DeMille. One of the stories you talk about in the book is being at his house and watching before everyone else The Ten Commandments. Oh, at Mr. At Mr. DeMille's house. At Mr. DeMille's house, yeah. That's right. That's a three-hour and 40-minute movie. <laughs> yeah. There was a break. There was a break. They had a dinner. It was just family and, you know, immediate DeMille family and, and the grandchildren. And I was age of Mr. DeMille's grandchildren. And uh, we were all put sort of at the same table. But I remember we all had round tables with linen tablecloths. And it was in a very big room. It wasn't like a screening room where you all sit in big leather booths. We all sat around these dinner tables just with family. And um, they screened this movie called The Ten Commandments. It was very long, but we were good children. And we they did. there was a break in it. But we sat. I, I remember sitting through the whole thing. I don't think we were removed because we were so young. How, how old would you have been at that time? Oh, I don't know. Let's say nine. What were your nine. thoughts on The Ten Commandments at nine? I'm curious. I don't think I had any thoughts no, about it, to be honest with you. It was, a, it was the, I mean, the subject matter wasn't as fascinating to me as the event. Right. Sitting, you know, in, I guess Mr. DeMille was famous, sitting in his home and getting to go out to a grown up thing in my Mary Jane's, <laughs> going to a movie. Uh, but the content of the movie, I don't remember exciting me as much as the event. Was it, were you aware, like, oh, I'm at Cecil B. DeMille's house? I mean, I know, like, who he was, and, like, I mean, you like, like, were you aware, like... No, I knew Mr. DeMille. I knew he was, like, a, a famous director. But the fact of me being in a famous director's home now would mean more to me now than it did then. <laughs> I knew Mr. DeMille was my grandfather's best friend. And I'd seen on my grandfather's piano, there was a huge, huge photo of Charlton Heston in this gorgeous, huge frame that Mr. DeMille had given Grandpa. So I was told that that was, you know, the star of the Ten Commandments and the director was Grandpa's best friend. And that was his way of saying thank you to Neil. I mean, I I knew, but I didn't know. It was normal because it was your life, but okay, I got it. But I I promise you, I didn't have that kind of life where I was always going to famous people's houses. (laughs) The, The big deal for me was I got to get dressed up and just go out, you know? 
Right. <laughs> the adults and see a movie and eat dinner out and you know not in the kitchen and uh, hey, good. in a wet bathing suit you know it was a just it was an event good news sharon you get to get dressed up and go out the bad news is it's a cecil b demille's and we're watching a four-hour movie <laughs> buckle up <laughs> buckle up <laughs> of the ten commandments we're bringing pats over to life for you right now you know to tell you the truth Jeff, I don't know if we ever saw the whole film after, if it was like four hours, I'm sure after two hours, they may have sent the children home. <laughs> but it's not like I was, oh, here comes the best part. You know, <laughs> right, right. Like, <laughs> wait, let's wait to the C parts. That's that you, yeah, you don't want to leave exactly. before that. So, oh, I did have a question, kind of a slight tangent, but like, do you at any point now dunk toast in yolk? Because never, never, because that's like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I know, but I just, I tell you, I can't do it. I tried it once and I didn't know what the fuss was about. The truth is I really like my eggs hard. I used to like them soft, but then when the white would get runny, I just, I couldn't go there. So I don't trust my outside, but no, it still affects me. If I would dunk my egg in the yolk, I would look to see if anybody was watching. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, well, first I was horrified because I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was bad etiquette. I just, I just thought that was common sense. You just put, of course you put the toast in the yolk. <laughs> only, only in my mother's world. I didn't, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, I never had uh, heard it, but I was like, oh, poor, poor shit. <laughs> but Robbed it did affect that. me. Rob. That's why I wrote about it. It did affect me. I, I don't do it. It was uh, it was an interesting dynamic because that that story is about is about your father and your mom and like right. and so I, that was that was interesting. So <laughs> oh, there's some things you never forget. I, I know, right? It's funny how you like I liked how you kind of start the book about talking about the photo of you at camp and how that being yeah. a, a happy place and stuff like that. I feel the same way. You look at certain photos and stuff, and certain things can just. Yeah. Take you back, take you back. You can see that in that child's face. I mean, that's just a happy, messy, ice cream covered, dirty clothes kid. <laughs> the best. Yeah. The best. So, <laughs> oh, so the book title, apparently there were complaints. So it was interesting. I well, I read it later, like, about, I don't know, two thirds of the way through. You mentioned it. It's uh, It was a response to a quote about why you quit drinking, right? Right. <laughs> and then- I was watching an old clip on Donnie and Marie, the show. You were on the Donnie and Marie show, and you were the girl next door. So it was right around 1998. And it was funny because you made kind of a sex joke on the Donnie and Marie show. I did. You said I slept with, you were like, oh, Sharon, Sharon. You were like, I slept with, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're like, I slept with the producer. You know, you were done. And, (laughs) and I was on Cagney and Lacey. And then, you went, Oops. I'm sorry, I know it's a family show. And, and Marie's like, it's an entertainment show. But Donnie they were asked, wonderful. Oh, yeah, they're, they're the best. And like, and then Donnie asked you about overcoming the alcoholism. And you said there were complaints. And so I just thought, yeah. so that phrase seems to have been with you for a while. How it, how it really happened is there was a big scandal in town those days when I went into rehab because I'd been playing Christine Cagney all those years and she ended up being a raging alcoholic. And it's the first time it was done on film where the hero of a show has a problem. Right. You know, heroes are heroes. Anyway, um, I was put into Hazleton, not against my own will. I shouldn't say against your own will. You do have to go. Nobody forces you. But I went, mm-hmm, all right. Anyway, there was a big scandal about it because the press was saying, is life imitating art? Was she drunk? She did those scenes when Chris Cagney did those award-winning scenes. When I got out... A friend of mine said, you were in Hazleton? I said, yeah. She said, why were you in Hazleton? And I was trying to be amusing. So I just said, apparently there were complaints. <laughs> Seemed like a funny answer to a sensitive subject. And it just stuck. And you're friends with Marie to this day? Yes, to this day, Marie and I are pals. That's awesome. She's wonderful. Just so wonderful. Marie was my first TV crush when I was a little Was kid. she? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you have good taste. Thank you. She's still beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a sensational show. My friend Dawn and I go whenever whenever Marie's in a city near us. We always go. We have dinner with Marie afterwards. That is awesome. So have you always kind of dreamed? I know your grandfather was like, the movie business is dirty and all that kind of stuff. At what point did that originally persuade you? Like, how much did you have it in your heart already before he kind of put it out of your head? I used to dream about it, but I never spoke of it ever. 
I was younger. I think I was in my late teens when he said that to me. And I don't know what persuaded me to ever say I wanted to be an actress because I was never saying things like that out loud those days. Uh, but I remember him saying, you stay out of it. It's a filthy business. That's the exact quote from him. And I didn't have the nerve to say, but that's how you made your money. <laughs> you know, because you weren't impudent. You know, you weren't allowed to respond like that. But I always remembered it. And then when I was 26, I finally admitted it is what I wanted. I worked behind the camera for many, many years as a production secretary. I was at my grandfather's home in Arizona when my step-grandmother and I emptied a bottle of champagne. And she said, Sharon, you're 26 years old and you have nothing to show for your life. <laughs> it was a little harsh, but I'd been mellowed with the champagne, so not quite so badly. She said, what do you want to do with your life? And she said, don't think about it. Just say it. Just, it doesn't matter what it is. Just say it out loud. Give it air. But I'd had enough champagne where it came out of my mouth. I said, I want to be an actress. She said, so do it. I said, Mary, I'm 26 years old. I'm a little long in the tooth. Little old to start trying to get in to get acting jobs. She said, I was in a contract MGM when I was your age. I said, really? She said, yeah, I wasn't very good. I only lasted a year. Anyway, a year after that, I was in a contract at the biggest television studio in the world, Universal. That's an interesting story that kind of leads up to that. You, Your mom kind of let you escape. Some stories from the book, right? You're like, Yeah, escape from my grandmother. Escape from your grandmother. That led to a uh, lucrative career in aluminum siding. That was very brave of my mother, by the way. I did. I sold aluminum siding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no money and I... Got on a Greyhound bus, ran away from home. I was 20 years old, but I was emotionally 12. I'd been so sheltered. My mom said, here's $200. I had to borrow it from a neighbor, but it's all I have. Take it and decide where you want to go. Let me know where you land so I can send you your trunk. And she said, if I were you, I would say to why. I can't believe this was all happening, by the way. She walked into the house and announced this. But she saved my life. My grandmother was arriving by train that day to Carmel, and my mother had to go pick her up, and you just didn't ever cross my grandmother. So my mother waited until she knew my bus had taken off, and she told my mother what she'd done. She helped me escape. And I asked my mother years later, I said, Mom, what did Grimmy say when you told her what you'd done? And she said, nothing. What could she say? I said, really? She said, I had to do it. It had to been the hardest thing she ever did, but she knew she had ever. to do it for you. And she was beholden to my grandmother. You know, she still had a little boy she was raising, and my grandmother was providing for him too. So it took a lot of a lot of guts. My gentle, sweet mom really stepped up and saved my life. I think that's what moms do, right? Yeah, that's right. That was awesome of your mom. A little heroic moment there. No kidding. I wrote a short story in a book before I wrote my book. I wrote just a short story. Someone had asked me to write a short story. A women. Women of Courage was the name of the book. And I told that story about my mom years and years ago. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a cool part of the kind of the story, the journey. Well, I need to reiterate, my mother was very gentle and very quiet, almost meek when she was around her mother. And she was very beholden to her, as we all were. So it took a lot of balls. Because <laughs> I was my grandmother's project. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did they see the legendary, the future legendary status, you think? No, my grandmother never saw me become an actress. My grandfather saw me sign my contract, but my grandmother had died years before. But I think she sees me from a better place. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, and then the funny thing in the book, your grandfather actually wrote the contract that you signed. Is that weird? That was weird. Yeah. I showed it to him and... He said, he burst out laughing. I said, what's so funny? He said, that's my contract. I said, what? He said, I drew up the first contract between a player and a studio. That had to have been, what, in the 20s or 30s? The 30s? They were cutting legal And fees. it was the exact same contract. He said, they made a few changes, but this is my contract. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. When you went back to your grandpa and he gave you the $150 for acting classes, right. and he was, then, he was very supportive, like you said you wanted to be an actress. What was it that he found filthy about the industry? Uh, was it something specific or, you know, because there's a lot of beautiful parts of it, right? A lot of the art that comes out of it, you know, a lot of the, the roles you did changed the way people perceive things and, and changed lives. So there's definitely positive, beautiful things that come out of it. But what was the filthy part? 
I never asked him, uh, but I do know a story about him. And maybe this is one of the, it's a filthy business because he was a really, really, really fine lawyer. Howard Hughes, Cecil B. DeMille's, Louis B. Mayers. And I heard a story about him. And it was about a, an actress who had signed a contract. And the contract said that she would get top billing in the movie. But now she landed a movie where the man was bigger. But legally, she had the right to the top billing. And my grandfather tried to, uh, this is just a story I heard. Sure, I don't sure. know if it's true. Uh, I tried to reason with her and ask her to please swap positions with the actor who now was a big shot. And she said, no. He said, fine. And when the billboards come out, I'm going to have them done in paint. And when the first rain comes, your name's going to wash right off the Ouch. Now that story I was told is true. And that's what he threatened the actress with. Mm. That her name would be done in paint and wash right off in the first rain. Is that true? I don't know. There's no reason for somebody to tell me this story. But Let's call it true. <laughs> yeah. Let's call it. So I'm sure, I'm sure he, he dealt with such huge um, clients. I'm sure he had to do a lot of stuff to protect him. But he was always a gentleman, you know? Right, right. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Sharon Glass. That was an amazing story, huh? But we need to take a quick break. And we're back with Sharon Glass, about to dive into her acting class and her lasting impression on her teacher. What was the acting class like? This was the, with Estelle Horman? Estelle Horman, yeah. Harman. Now, I was only there a year when I got my contract at Universal. I loved it. I was in heaven. It was a frightening moment. So when I had to stand in front of the rest of the class and say my name, I've never done anything like that. Say my name and tell them something that would remind them of my name. I can't remember what I said. I'm sure whatever I said was stupid. Um, but I remember shaking just terribly, having to stand there in front of my, the audience and say in front of the class and say my name. I've come a long way. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, it was the kind of um, anecdotes that went with that is that Later, decades later, you found out she thought you gave the worst audition ever. Yes. <laughs> Two Emmys later. Later, I found out from her daughter who ended up teaching. And she said, you know, mom told me. <laughs> she said, mom told me that was the worst audition scene she had ever seen in her entire career. I thought it was good. But, uh, she let me in her class because she knew my uncle. My uncle had said, be good to my kids, you know? So she let me into her class. But years and years later, she told her daughter, Eden, she said, you know, I changed how I taught because of Sharon Glass. She used to teach from the outside in. She'd get all your costumes and your looks and you do these psychological gestures and all this stuff to become this character. Had nothing to do with the inside work. It was all outside, physical. And I didn't know, I never told her that I didn't do things the way she told me, but I used to go inside first and find whatever it was I needed and then do my scene. And uh, she told her daughter that years later, she changed how she taught acting. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, quite a, yeah. that's quite a tribute to you right there. No shit. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I wish she'd have told me. Well, at least you eventually found out. Yes. So interestingly, so you do from here, you kind of, you do a play, right? And then uh, yes. 1972 or, 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 and then um, I wrote the name. Of the oh, play. I made a mistake. Oh, go ahead. What was the mistake? Do you want me to tell that story? Sometimes the weirdest things happen, but it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, Lana Turner on Schwab's drugstore, you know, on a, on, a, on a drugstore stool. But I did this little play in Encino, California, in the Encino Adult Community Center, we only had folding chairs. We didn't charge anybody. We only ran two nights. But my first night, I missed my cue. And I was playing a nurse in a period piece. It's a long, white uniform, like World War II. And I missed my cue, and I was out of my uniform. My hair was out of its ponytail. My hair was disheveled. I was changing, and I realized, oh, my God, my cue's coming up. I put on my uniform, held it together, and just ran on stage. I was so inexperienced ran on stage, saying my line. Everybody cracked up because they thought that my character was being, you know, having sex with the patient, <laughs> her old patient, you know, off stage, not off stage, but in the story. Sure. And it wasn't. And I got a call from a man who was in uh, publicity at Universal Studios saying, you're a natural comic. 
I said, I want you to meet John Cassavetti. You should be perfect for the lead in this new film. And I want you to meet Monique James, the head of our talent department. And I said, okay, cut the bullshit. Who is this? He said, I understand you're being skeptical. But I'm telling you, Jeff, because I made that mistake, and you never know who's in the audience. It was a terrible mistake. But it just, the actors on stage started laughing. I didn't because I was so panicked. So they thought, brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) You know, it was just a mistake. And it got me the attention of Universal. I think it's amazing how... There's always like that one little story where something happens. You make that mistake. The right person sees it. Uh, Orrin Bernstein, you know, introduces you to Monique James. And then the rest of your life is changed from that moment. I swear to you, do little theater. People say to me, you know, well, I want to be an actress. What should I do? To quote Tyne Daly, I say, act wherever you can. It doesn't matter if you have a little theater in your town. You never know who's out there. You never know. I mean, you, you think like, oh, if you had panicked and just not even gone out or. <laughs> oh, no, I had to go well, out. I'm just there saying like if, if you had made me. some irrational decision or something like that. Oh, I mean, like I made the irrational decision of just holding on to my costume and going out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just an amazing thing, because then your relationship yeah. with Monique James, like she was the one that was with you through all that. She was formidable, formidable. Yes, she was. the. They called her the star maker. She died. That's she was known as the star maker. She was very powerful in those days. You attract very powerful people. So that's oh, maybe please. It's just you. <laughs> My dreams, right? <laughs> so so you get signed as a contract player. Yes. And yes. you become the last contract player. I did. The last contract player in the history of Hollywood. I was the last one to leave 10 years later. That's incredible. Yeah. That's an cr- incredible antidote. I had a question. Like Eddie Albert. Yes. You were very close. He was very inspirational. Yes, he was. I mean, he he didn't try to teach me things. I mean, but he was formidable. You know, he was a famous actor in those days. I'd known him from motion pictures and apparently he'd done theater and I'd known him from television. So I knew, I mean, who he was. And he was warm, but not warm like RJ, like Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner is just so sweet and warm and encouraging. And, you know, and he's a little... Little to be a little scary. I write in there that he, in his character, we did a series called Switch about a cop and an ex-con form partnership to you know solve crime. Eddie played the ex-cop, and he when he'd sit at his desk, he always wore this bright red sweater, bright bright red. And I was trying to be you know one of the guys and jokes. And I said, "So Eddie, you trying to upstage me with that sweater?" I said, "Honey, I don't have to wear a red sweater to upstage you." <laughs> <laughs> oh man i just learned humility all along the way (laughs) uh it's too funny i was a big incredible hulk fan so jack colvin i yeah jack mcgee like i (laughs) I yeah love the incredible hulk it was like and i was like oh my god jack colvin and so uh that was was, those are some those are some cool stories from the book and yeah um, he used to train me almost every night he and I, obviously, we lived together for five years. Um, but he used to train me every night, whatever scenes I was doing, because he was an actor. Sure, sure. So when I read the story about house calls, Wayne <laughs> Rogers, I... <laughs> God rest his soul. God rest his soul. Uh, it's, uh, I kind of got upset with him when I read the story. It was like, I didn't know it. It was like, yeah, I know that kind of thing can happen these days, like with what happened with Lynn Redgrave being let go because of nursing and all that kind of stuff, but... I hadn't done Cagney and Lacey yet, so I didn't know that. I, I, I was just stunned. She was fired because she uh, wanted to make as much money as he did. Lynn Redgrave wanted to make as much money. She was the oh, co-star I, of the show. Oh, she was, what? what? She what? was billed over the title <laughs> with him. She deserved it. She was billed it. over the title yeah. with him, and she, after, I think, three years, she wanted to make as much money as he did, and uh, she wanted to nurse her baby on the set, her new baby, and um, he had her fired. When I met with him, one of the first things out of his mouth was, I could have saved her, you know? Yeah, that's that was the exact line that made me go, oh, I don't like Wayne Rogers. No. <laughs> but you, being probably the coolest person ever, the story about you having a cast party, not yeah. inviting him, and inviting Lynn Redgrave, who you've replaced I'd on never the show. met her. I mean, she was, she was like Lynn Redgrave, yeah. hello? And then faking a fight at the party. That was like that was Lynn's idea. I can't take credit for that. I take credit for inviting her. 
which I thought was kind of a classy thing to do. I'd never met her. So classy. So classy. It was, uh, yeah, it was like, she's classier than I am. She accepted. <laughs> and she said, uh, she said, you want to stage a fight? I said, yeah, what do we do? She said, well, outside your house, you know, if you have an open window and open doors, then we can fight outside with the cast all inside. I said, great. So I told her about what time to come and I pulled in my driveway because my I had little house in the driveway pull up right next to my little house. I walked out. I saw the lights through my windows while the party's going on. I thought, oh, my God, she's here. It's like 11 o'clock at night now. And uh, David Wayne, who played the old guy, the old doctor on House Calls, he grew grass in Pacific Palisades in his backyard. This is this was the, you know, the early 80s. It was very cool. Right. Anyway, he brought all this grass. And everybody's having a good time. And you see these lights plop. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's here. So I say, excuse me a minute. I don't know who this is, I say to the cast. And I go out. And I said, hello, Ben Redgrave. <laughs> she said, hello, Sharon. Cuts. <laughs> so I'm like, oh. She said, you ready? I said, sure. And uh, she said, what do you mean you didn't invite me to this party? With her British accent. Really loud. I said, why would I invite you to the party? You can't act for shit. <laughs> I said this to Redgrave. <laughs> She says, fuck you. She says to me, I say, fuck me, fuck you. And she's following me on the lawn to the French doors. And the cast is right inside. And I left the doors open. So when I, the last time I said, fuck you, get out of here. I'm calling the police. And I slammed the door in her face. And I, can I say anything I want on this show? Sure. Oh, so I turned to the cast. I said, what a cunt. Anyway, <laughs> they're all silent. And, and I said, hold on a minute. I went and I opened the French door. I said, get in here. I'm sick of entertaining these people. She came in and they just, they applauded and they loved her so, so much. She was so loved. Anyway, it was a very cool evening. That's a, isn't that a cool story? I love that story. I love that story. And if, if like phones existed then the way they exist now and people had caught that, it would, it'd be like one of oh, those legendary things, right? That you're people, so right. I know. They were ashen when I came because we were really loud <laughs> using our theater voices, right? They could hear us. And I left the doors open on purpose. They, who can miss her her voice? Anyway, anyway, she was a God rest her soul. She was a great name. Amazing story. And then another she amazing. Should have won the Oscar for Georgie. Yes. And then the other amazing story is your long road to Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, don't, I guess I didn't realize Loretta Swit uh, had done it originally. After I was asked to do it. Oh, right. You were asked first and then they, right. They got it, but you were under contract, right? Right. And then it wasn't until the house calls ended that you kind of could then get back into it. Right. It was interesting because I read that she had probably wished that would have been her next series. I think so. I, I mean, obviously we've never spoken it seems it. other people got out of their MASH contracts, i.e. Wayne Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and the other guy, um, I can't remember his name. He, well, there was no reason for her to get out of MASH. She was a huge hit. Yeah, she was you a know? Huge it, was, right. it was a hit. But she contractually had to return to MASH. You know? She wasn't going to do it for a show that no one had ever heard of. Right. And yes, it did turn out very well for me. And I don't know how she felt about it. I, she wishes me well. Oh, I'm sure she does. You know, just little IMDb trivia. It was oh, around. sure. You know, <laughs> yeah. But she was wonderful. She was wonderful in match. I love that Michael Douglas had given you kind of the push to consider the series. And I know he was such a nice man. I don't even know if he remembers working with me. I'm sure he does. But I played his wife uh, in a feature just before I took over Cagney and Lacey. Not took over, but I stepped in Cagney and Lacey. I'd always wanted to be in the movies. So they worked my shooting schedule with Michael in his feature around Cagney and Lacey. So they put all of my scenes in five days. And then I had to go to start this new show called Cagney and Lacey. You ever heard of it, right? And I asked Michael, Michael, do you think I'm making a mistake? I've always wanted to be in movies. Now I'm set to do this series. And I don't know, am I making a mistake? He said, have you ever heard of the streets of San Francisco? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, enough said. <laughs> so right so right yes so Cagney and Lacey groundbreaking show right and interestingly enough right they were going to cancel it but then they brought you on because they they weren't happy with Meg Foster and the dynamic right. between her and and so Meg's a wonderful yeah. actress by the way it just there was no chemistry between. right 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 oh yeah yeah absolutely and and so you agreed to come on and then you become uh Christine Cagney 
And then it was interesting. It was interesting, like reading about and just I think it's hard to not notice just in the watching clips online and just even just over the years while the show was on and after just your relationship with Tyne Daly, like just how close you guys are. I write about her quite a bit in the book because, I mean, I was her third Cagney and she liked the last one. She loved Meg. They were very close and they toured the country trying to save the show. You know, I mean, they, right. they really, they, they really hit it off and they loved each other. So bringing me on board was not Tyne's dream. And she didn't know me and didn't know my work. And anyway, it was tense. It was tense. But once I signed on and we got our billing dispute settled. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very clever way to uh, resolve that dispute also. That's what Barney Rosenzweig did. Boom, right. Because neither of us were willing to move off of our position of being first billed. Tyne had every right to want to be first billed. It was about the third time she was about to play Lacey. You know, and here comes this blonde. <laughs> but I had high TVQ that I brought with me and I'd already been, you know, anyway. So, right. so I didn't let go of my position and neither did she. So Barney said, why don't we split it? Every other week we'll flip. So every other week we flipped. And the week that I was billed first... There'd always be a print ad, you know, in papers. She'd be billed first in the print ad. Then the next week, she'd be billed first, and I'd be billed first in the print ad. That's a great compromise. It, it, that works. Minutia, uh, you know, but I mean, at the time, it meant a lot to me. No, no, I, I, I totally, I can understand that. I loved, um, it was interesting also, so at the end of season one, the end of your part of it as well, the show gets right. canceled, right? Mm. And- Interestingly enough, I mean that now we live in the in the world of social media, right? Now there'd be a tweet storm. There'd be people on code right. there'd be like a there's a, no such thing. No such thing back then. But amazingly, back then, everyone took to paper and typewriter <laughs> and sort of paper and pen. Or a pen and a stamp. And stamps and yeah. licked that envelope and <laughs> sent it in. And Barney Rosenswag wrote a form letter for which he apologized. To everybody who wrote, offering their condolences for the demise of the show. And he said, you have power. Oh, yeah. Said, it was an incredible thing. Don't yeah, he- write CBS because they never read them. He said, but write your local newspaper, write the, uh, the New York Times, write the LA Times, and your fi- local affiliate station. So everybody wrote two letters. Each person wrote two letters. And the bags of mail started coming into CBS from these affiliate stations or New York Times, you know? And they said, Uncle, we were wrong. It's, it's incredible. Fact, nine months later, Barney had to bring the cast together, hoping he could get the cast back. And nobody signed on for something else. Had to bring the, the studio back. He had built a studio for he'd taken an old warehouse and turned it into a studio. And he had to get his own studio back. But he did it. It's, it's incredible. And, and then the, the summer ratings blew up. And then yeah. you guys won, you guys received four Emmy nominations for this camp. The first year? For, yes, yeah, we the, did. So all while it was canceled, so they they backtracked and brought it back. So time won time won four Emmys. I won two. You won two. She won four. She won four. But the story you tell in the book about her fourth, which would have which you were hoping would have been your third, and then you had to present after after not winning. Oh, okay. This was like Lauren Michaels. Yeah. Lauren, Lauren Michaels gave you a speech to read when you went out there. Cause Tyne had now just won and you had lost. And this is, I guess it never happened. The presenter had yeah. never just lost before. I mean, just well, right after. He right said, after. I have never had a presenter present after their category. It's just never been done because if they lose, you know, it's just, uh, um, he said, but before the evening and you know, the day before he, we came for rehearsal or I did. And he said, I'm going to try something. Whether you win or lose, I want you to present the award after your category. I said, great. He said, I've written two speeches. One if you win <laughs> and one if you lose. <laughs> and he's a funny guy. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I memorized the one if I won because I was trying to be positive. I did take my glasses out with me. So I apologized to the audience saying I'd memorized the other one. <laughs> and I read presenting the next award from someone who just lost <laughs> and he's a Norman Michaels is very funny. Oh, it was so funny. And then you basically stole the night. It was a it was a great it was a great <laughs> great story. I love I love that one. Thank you. Even Jack Lemon later that night told me I'd made his night. <laughs> he lost too. So Oh, that's awesome. Jack Lemon, you also mentioned again, he wrote you 
about his when struggles I was in, with alcoholism. When I was uh, in Hazleton, when I got out of Hazleton, he'd read all the press about me, you know, the bad press. And uh, wrote me a letter, didn't put it through the mail. He actually came to my house and put it in my mailbox. He gave me like his four phone numbers. Wow. I was so starstruck. I called immediately and left a message on his cell phone. Probably just giddy as hell. Thanking him so much, you know, for support. I never heard from him again. But what a loving thing. Just such thing a nice um, gesture. Saying if I was ever in trouble or I didn't, you know, I was confused or please call him. He understood. That's so cool. So cool. It's nice when you learn all the good people out there. Yeah. I had a question with Cagney and Lacey. All right. So Barney mm-hmm. made you and Ty custodians of the character. I mean, he basically put you in charge of, I guess, the continuity or how the, they were acting. And if the script came in, you could push back. It was right. that normal. I mean, was that like one of the groundbreaking things, too? I'd never heard that before where the writers didn't kind of own that, where they you were given like that kind of control. I thought that was super cool, but well, yes, and verbally his things. You are now the custodian of these characters. If there's anything that doesn't ring true for you, please come to me, and I will set you up with the writers. That was true. Tyne and I used to go in at the very beginning. We used to go in together, you know, for a meeting, and then Barney got that it was sort of awkward. Tyne worked differently than I did. She knew exactly what she didn't like. She, if she didn't like uh, the, the structure of the script. I didn't know dick about structure. You know, I just knew emotionally about my characters. Then he'd set the meetings up private and I'd go in and he would interpret for me. He'd bring a writer in and then interpret what I had just said to him because I didn't know how to talk to the writers. I was more emotional and he would interpret for me. And time, he'd just bring in the writer and she'd just tell him, I don't like this. (laughs) (laughs) I love the story you tell about just how you each chose what type of cup to drink your coffee out of to help define your characters i mean it's like those are sort of like some of those meta details that whether you notice or not is like you know just becomes so it was sort of an accident i personally never liked commitment and i personally always drank out of a styrofoam cup even scotch at the end of the day barney would invite tyne and me to his office at the end of the day to have a drink with him and carol his assistant always knew to make mine in a styrofoam cup and tyne's in a glass as the show evolved, somebody, a fan, made a coffee cup that said Lacey and a coffee cup that said Cagney, dug into the cup. And Lacey put it on the, in the coffee stand with the other detectives' cups. And I never wanted to drink out of a, a real cup. I just thought, that isn't like Cagney either. She's on the run, you know, screw it. She just throws the cup away on her way out the door. So I put mine on my desk and put my pencils in it <laughs> on Lacey's desk. And to this day, I have it at my home in L.A. with my pens. In. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But Tyne was a permanent person. I mean, she committed. I mean, I'm sorry, Lacey. Lacey committed to, committed to a family, to children, to the job. Cagney couldn't commit to anything except the job. Except that the- was everything and then your next your next Emmy on Cagney and Lacey was for Turn 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 Part Two. Yes, where you uh, confront alcohol, alcoholism. Bro. How difficult was that? Because then a year later, it was it it became sort of life imitating art, right? So it was a year later. Yeah, I mean the next the second to the last year, Barney had had a meeting with the writers. He'd always have a meeting before the season, give them instruction or to hear their ideas. You know how they saw characters evolving and she's like at the end of year four i had an interview with a woman who said do you know that cagney is the adult child of an alcoholic now cagney had been drinking for four years on on screen she was always out drinking with somebody she was sleeping with or the gay neighbor across the way or always with her father was a drunk Cagney always had a drink in her hand but it was all fun and games you know and this woman said do you know that cagney is the adult child of an alcoholic I said, well, now that you say it, I guess she is because her father's a drunk. She said, well, you have all the attributes of it. I said, really? So I went to Barney after the interview. I said, did you know that Chris Cagney has all the attributes of an adult child of an alcoholic? He says, honey, you're the one playing her. I said, oh. He said, you're the one playing her. You're the one putting that stuff in. He said, I know you never wanted Cagney to be a victim. She's been drinking for four years now. Do you want to deal with it? I said, I don't know. I said, Okay. So he wrote a script and he called me into his office. He said, nobody has seen this. I want you to read it. Tell me what you think. And I swear to you, nobody has seen it. But the writer who wrote it, the two writers who wrote it. 
I went home and I read it and I came back the next morning and I said, brilliant. You're going to get to play it. It was so devastating. It was a devastating piece of material. It was a two-parter and I ended up playing it, but there'd never been anything like it on television ever. And there'd never been a hero on television who fell from grace. You know, heroes were heroes. And she, you see all the scenes in her apartment that you hadn't been seeing for the last four years. And it was bloody. It was violent. It was, we did a screening of it. It sounds so arrogant of me, and I'm not an arrogant person. We did a screening of it. I never watched myself on Cagney. But um, Barney said I had to come to the screening because it was press and family to see the two-parter. The second half of the two-parter, every scene, at the end of every scene, people would applaud. Every single scene, they'd applaud and they'd applaud. And Barney, at the end of the show, I was just stunned because I never watched it myself. He said, stand right here. People are going to want to come by. Everybody in the room, all the press, everyone, one by one, came by to talk to me. And I didn't write it, but it was devastating to watch a hero fall from grace like that. And with the help of Chine Daly, who comes in the next morning, and Kagi doesn't even remember she was there. It's with Chine Daly then coming and picking up the pieces. It's an amazing scene. It was an amazing episode. Amazing. Oh, what I was going to tell you is the year before that, Barney had a meeting with the writers. And he said, uh, I want to give you the last line of the last scene of the last episode of next year's stuff. He said, wow. Okay, what? He said, my name is Christine, and I'm an alcoholic. He said, now you have 22 episodes to get to that. That's quite a challenge for the the writer's room. They must have. Oh, uh, no shit. Yeah, that was, because um, interesting enough, if, be, being one of the first, if the first time uh, a main character gets kind of, you know, faces demons like that, it was it was yeah. groundbreaking just in, in how they would get to that and make sure that they pulled it off. As well as they, they didn't did. pull any punches. Yeah. I must say that Barney did do me a great favor. The minute I entered my apartment, which is where the destruction starts, she enters it drunk. Then you see all the scenes you never see. Um, he allowed me to shoot it in order. You never shoot anything in order. It's all shot out of sequence. But because I had to fall so badly into stuff, he let me shoot in order so I'd remember what I did and how far I still had to go. Brilliant. Yeah. He knew how to take care of you and the character for sure. For he did. Sure. One funny, additional funny story in the book is you meeting Paul McCartney and not knowing you met Jesus. Paul McCartney. <laughs> Believe that? I was so nervous. I'm shy, but I am shy. And I was so nervous eating the Royals and stuff at the BBC black tie thing. Paul McCartney, apparently, Barney said, did you get his... Barney comes up to me and he says, did you get his autograph? I said, whose? <laughs> he said, Paul McCartney. I said, I didn't see Paul McCartney. He said, he just asked for your autograph. I love that Oh, story. my God. If I ever had the privilege of meeting him again, I'd love to tell him, can I have your autograph now? Is it too late? <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he remembers. He was probably just standing there going, um. <laughs> you know, I'm being the big shot, right? Sure. Oh, yeah, here. Oh, man. I just I, it's a, I don't even know if I asked him his name. Who do I make it out to? <laughs> <laughs> Which one are you? Which one? <laughs> yeah, I just, no, I didn't know I was talking to a beetle. I did, I had no idea. I was so nervous. <laughs> to Paul, follow your dreams. Yeah, sure. be a best wishes. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That was so funny. Uh, well, one day maybe. One day. <laughs> The other cool thing, uh, I mean, when I say other oh, cool things, there's a million cool things. You played on the role of Annie on Misery in, in uh, Stephen King play Misery. Right, in the West End. That was the first time this play was brought, or the that story was brought to a play, right? So you originated- To the stage. The stage, right. Stephen King told the writer, uh, no, I can't remember, he was our director too. Anyway, this Stephen King told him he'd always seen it as a two-hander, only two people on stage for two hours doing it. None of the town, none of the town folks coming into the sheriff or, you know, the people who usually enter just this, just the two of them. And it was, it was bloody. We did it. Or it was written as Stephen King wrote the book, which is much rougher than the movie. Oh, I know. I read your <laughs> talking about it. I mean, Kathy Bates was brilliant in the movie, but the movie was soft compared to what Stephen King actually wrote. 
I didn't realize how soft it was till I read your book. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> yeah, the parallels I wanted to kind of draw though, is you're playing the crazy fan. You talk about mm-hmm. in the book, you had your own, at least one that you talk about crazy fan, like really was going to try yeah. and kill herself in front of you and a very disturbed person. Yeah. But the, the story that I actually wanted to kind of mention is that I thought was. I never used her name in the book. No, no, no. You never used her. And I won't now. I, I do that to protect her. Oh, no, no. I, I'm not going to ask. I, the, um, the, but the, the story where, that I, I wanted to share is a year prior to your incident, Rebecca Schaefer from My Sister Sam had been shot by a, a fan. Uh, that was a Pam Dauber uh, episode right. show that she was in. And, and you testified at the California Supreme Court and got the law changed that allowed the crazy fan who got Rebecca's information through the DMV changed. Yeah, the Department of Vehicles was giving out addresses and, and Pam's parents and her fiance flew with me to Sacramento and we got the law changed. The DMV can never give out addresses. That's how she got killed. Right. So I thought I thought that was just so really cool. That- I took a bag of all the letters that my what I say assailant, my person had mail had sent to me over the years. I took those up to Sacramento, left them, just left them there. They they were too busy to listen to us. I mean, here's Pam Darber's parents and, and her fiance. And um, they were too busy to listen to us, but I left the letters there and they knew why we were there. And that day they passed the law. That's awesome though. How many lives yeah. then were saved by closing that yeah. loophole? Oh shit. So what's next for Sharon Glass? What are you working on these days? I don't know. I just did one scene in a movie in New Orleans. It's a really naughty scene. <laughs> uh, it's a Pierce Brosnan is the star of the show. Forgive me. Another very beautiful young hot actress from Brazil. Arena, forgive me. I can't remember her last name. Anyway, the scene is starts out with Pierce and me and Arena. And then it just ends with Marina. Most of it is with Marina. It's the dirtiest scene anyone's ever sent me. <laughs> he sent me the scene saying, if you'd like to see the rest of the script, please let us know. They said, this scene has nothing to do with the rest of the script. <laughs> and anything that could come out of my mouth that I could imagine is in this scene. I said, I don't need to see the rest of the script. I did eventually read it. But I said, however did you get my name? <laughs> <laughs> it is the most foul. It's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful scene. Anyway, I, I talked to the director by Zoom and he wanted an all in accent. So it takes a little. It doesn't take much of the edge off the filth that comes out of my mouth. But it was, it was cool. It was cool. And I got to meet Pierce Brosnan, who's a charming, very, very charming, lovely, lovely. You got to hang with James Bond. <laughs> I got to hang with James Bond. That's really cool. Yeah. And he sent me roses to my room. That is awesome. Not so bad. And then Don chimed in with uh, Marina Baccarin. Right. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Don's always saying Don's awesome. Yes, yeah, she is. She was great in um, Homeland and V and the Deadpool movies. That's right. Forgive me. I'm I'm old. I, you know. No, no, it's totally. It isn't Haley Mills. I don't. Remember. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, but she's very beautiful and was wonderful in the scene. And it's really naughty. <laughs> I, I hope can't you enjoy it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote a, I got a, I wrote a note. It's, it's on my to-do list uh, whenever it comes out. It's called Fast Charlie. Fast Charlie? Yes, Fast Charlie. That's the name of the Got uh, it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, very cool, very cool. And that was just like a month ago. So um, now I want to do, I have another series in me. Yeah, you do? Yeah. Do you have one like that you could uh, written, like where you need to shop it or- no, you just you on the lookout. No, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. I'm just a or Barney find somebody, you know, something like that. Like, you know, like you did for trials of Rosie O'Neill, that kind of thing. Like find you. A, well, he, he show. it was Barney's idea. You know, he told writers, you know, what he wanted, um, like in Cagney and Lacey. But I don't I don't have a plan. I'd like to do a one camera comedy. I don't have to be the lead in it. one camera, though. I don't like no multicam multicam. No. I just think it'd be fun. Someone did some research on me. My book came out. He said, do you know that you've done nine television series? The only person who's matched you in that was Cloris Leachman. That's a lot. I said, really? I didn't know that. He said, yes, nine of them. Wow. And Cloris is now gone. He said, the only person who's beat you out is Betty White. She's done 10. I said, well, then my goal is to join Betty in that 
not now, not where Betty is. No, no. I'm not ready to join Betty, but I would be honored to join Betty in that accomplishment. We got to make it I've happen. Get Barney in here. Let's come up with an idea. We can do something. Maybe a He's female retired. James Bond or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could do it. Something irreverent. All right. Well, yeah. I hope that happens because that is something I would love to see. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This was You've been wonderful. A, an honor, a blast. Oh, you've made it so you've made me so comfortable. Thank you. I really had a good time. Oh, well, awesome. I appreciate that. It was yeah, it was cool. I know we didn't there's so much more we there was so much more we could still go into, but I, I'm so appreciative of Well, the, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Very good. I would love that. Proved I proved negative for COVID today. I got COVID. Both my husband and I did. But today I'm all well. Today you're now you're negative. You can just go out and like touch anything you want. <laughs> go out and touch anybody or anything. You got I antibodies want. for 90 days. You're like you're like a superhuman. That's right. You can That's do right. anything. <laughs> my ego was totally shattered. I think I had such arrogance about never getting it. And I got it. So I just got it also, actually. And so I'm I'm in the same boat. I was the same arrogance uh that you had. We've gone all this time. So good. <laughs> I know. So I know. Good. So good. Ah. So. Oh, well. Now we've done that. Now we've gone through it. All right. Now we can focus on your next TV series. So. Okay. Where can people keep up with you? SharonGlass.com and social medias. What do you, where do you have? Ask Dawn. Ask <laughs> Dawn. All right. Well. <laughs> Is Dawn talking? I don't know. We'll, we'll give Dawn a second. She's probably busy. No, I'm, I'm unmuting myself. She's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All the usual places, SharonGless.com. Her husband frequently puts blogs out on CagneyandLacy.com, and the movie Fast Charlie comes out March 17th. So that'll be fun to watch. Hell yeah, what did you hear? What we were, did you hear the whole discussion earlier? <laughs> I did, and it will be fun to watch because if you've ever seen her in Queer as Folk, you'll know she's capable of such um, pretty language. <laughs> I have never been more excited. For anything. Don, thank you very much. Oh, Isn't she pleasure. pretty? Isn't she beautiful? Oh, stop, Sharon. <laughs> Don, you're that. beautiful. I will concur. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sharon, you are beautiful. Also, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was it was great. Thank oh, you Jeff, thank you very much. Don's my best friend. I know. She introduced herself at the very beginning. She's, she doesn't work for me. She just does this because she loves me. <laughs> she made Starts me feel at ease right in the beginning. She's like, Sharon's going to be here in a minute. She was great. If she worked for me, she wouldn't boss me around like she does. <laughs> Bosses me around. Well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to be strong enough to stand up to her, right? If you're on payroll, you can't stand up to your boss. You can't afford me anyway, Jeff. True. Oh, guys. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, sometime in the next interview, I'll tell you our, our backstage Marie Osmond meeting of the very first time. To demonstrate that what you heard earlier is absolutely, in fact, correct. And, uh, well, Sharon, just, you know, you tend to have a very fun vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, that I not. That's what we love about you. Cannot yeah. wait. All right. The wonderful Don, the wonderful Sharon Glass. Thank you, Jeff, so much for this talk. And you're really good at it. You made me very comfortable. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so honored. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. All right, everybody. The amazing Sharon Glass and Dawn. I can't leave out Dawn. Dawn was listening in the whole time and every now and then would DM me uh, a little fact. So if all of a sudden I just said something random, it was likely because Dawn sent me a DM. So she's a good friend of Sharon's and it was lovely to have her as an impromptu part of the show. Go to SharonGlass.com. You can get links to all her socials and the book and all that kind of good stuff. I love that Paul McCartney story. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag Roundup. Download the free hashtag Roundup app at the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. Totally free. Doesn't cost a penny. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. 
The hashtag for this episode is hashtag cold cop shows from Weekly Humorist, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. Of course, inspired by one of the greatest cop shows ever, Cagney and Lacey. This is hashtag cold cop shows. It's the ultimate mashup between anything cold or chilly and cop shows. You mash those two things together, what happens? Hilarity ensues, of course. All right, here are some hashtag cold cop shows. Hawaii five snow, Adam 12 below, thaw in order. You get it? Hashtag cold cop shows. These are some ultimate mashup tweets I'm dropping on you. McChillin and wife, NYPD turning blue, Barney Chiller, Jake and the Iceman. You got your own hashtag cold cop shows tweet? Go tweet it right now. Tag us at Jeff Jawaskin Show on Twitter. We'll show you some Twitter love on your hashtag cold cop shows tweet. But here's some more. Beverly chills cop, ice chips, NYPD blue lips, Hawaii five below, car 54 below. Where are you? And our final hashtag cold cop shows tweet, Cagney and AC. Oh, <laughs> you saw that one coming maybe, right? Had to have a Cagney and Lacey one in there. Thank you, CK. All right, all these tweets are retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. Go show them some Twitter love, tweet your own, and have some fun with it. All right, well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, it can only mean one thing. Oh, episode 154 has come to an end. I want to thank my amazing guest, Sharon Gless and Dawn. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.